Hey, this is Delitra. Hey, everybody. This is Angela. And you're listening to Nutrient Sisters, a podcast dedicated to helping you learn how to nourish your body and soul. everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Nutrient Sisters. If you don't already know me, my name is Delitra. As always, I'm here with my co-host Angela, and we actually have a special guest with us today. Today we have Dr. Kaufman on the podcast today. Dr. Kaufman is an award-winning allergist, immunologist. If her profession doesn't give you a hint about what we're discussing today, let me make it clear. Today, we are discussing food allergies. Currently, there are nine major food allergens. Those are milk, egg, fish, crustacean shellfish, tree nuts, wheat, peanuts, soybeans, and most recently, sesame was signed into law as the ninth major food allergen. Major allergens are required to be clearly labeled on food packaging, and this makes it easier for consumers to identify allergens without having to read through the entire ingredient list. However, it can be difficult to navigate having food allergies in other settings like social functions and eating out. In 2018, it was reported that about 32 million Americans have food allergies. So it is likely that someone listening has one or knows somebody with food allergies. So today we're going to learn more about Dr. Kaufman, her work, and an overview of food allergies. Welcome, Dr. Kaufman, to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, ladies. Thank you so much for, for being here with us today. Um, so if you could start by telling us more about you, uh, what you do, where you're based out of, any special training that you have. Sure. So I'm an allergist immunologist in private practice, and I help children and adults who are suffering from allergies and recurrent infections to feel better and regain the quality of life that they deserve. In the many different types of allergy and immune system problems that I have, a good portion of patients whom I see have all different types of problems with food, whether it's food allergy or other immunologic food problems. And I even see a lot of patients for food intolerance. So there's a pretty wide array of um, what we manage in the spectrum of food disorders in my office. Um, my practice is called Kaufman Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, and we're located in Northern Virginia in one of the Washington, D.C. suburbs called Vienna. And um, we've been in practice here um, for just over six months. This is a new, a new private practice. So we're just, you know, we're getting started, but we're really happy to serve our local community. Oh, wow. Awesome. Yeah, I, I didn't even know you were from Northern Virginia. <laughs> you're you're yeah. where Delitra and I are from, so. <laughs> yeah, we're neighbors. <laughs> right. So you said that you work with children and adults. So what 
What is like a pro the process, I guess, for someone who comes in to your office? Well, when new patients come in to see me in the office, um, you know, we see, you know, patients of all ages from infancy all the way into the, the elderly years. And so whomever is coming in to see us, you know, we do a great intake and get a lot of background and history and vital signs. And then I go in and begin the evaluation where we really take a very focused history going through all of the relevant clinical symptoms that kind of span the spectrum of what we see with allergic and immunologic disease processes and once I get a great feeling of what patients have been experiencing, we do a physical exam and then move into the realm of determining what type of testing is indicated and how do we best give our patients a diagnosis so that way we can move forward with different treatment modalities to help um, the patients to feel better, minimizing the need for medications and to improve their qualities of life. Okay. Yeah, I saw, well, my nephew, uh, my nephew is allergic to peanuts and yeah. I found that out because when he was like one, <laughs> I gave him peanut butter and he broke out knives and I was like, oh God. So, but I guess, um, you know, it looks very painful. Is this like a painful process to try and figure out if someone's allergic to something? You mean, are you asking about the testing being painful? Yeah. yeah. Oh, no, the testing is very, very easy. So, you know, depending on what the problem is, there's a lot of different type of tests that we do here in our in our practice. And, um, you know, most people, I think, when we're talking about immediate hypersensitivity, whether it's to foods or other environmental allergens, we're really talking about skin prick testing. And that's a very um, simple diagnostic tool where we take these tiny little things that are called prick lancetters. It's basically a tiny little sterile metal point. And it introduces a tiny bit of allergen extract into the skin on the patient. And areas where we tend to do our testing are on the upper back or the underside of the forearm. Those are the two validated places for testing. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it's, you know, it's something that you can feel, but it's not inherently painful. Okay. It literally just takes a second. It's on and off of the skin. And, um, and then patients sit for about 15 minutes um, in order to get the results in which positive testing um, to the patient will feel itchy. And to those of us who are reading the test, it's going to look sort of like what we expect to see with a fairly classic mosquito bite, like a bump with an area of redness around it, okay. with which we measure it with a little ruler at the end of the test, and then we interpret our results. So while the, the pricks themselves, I think, induce a little bit of anxiety for people that, you know, have heard about testing or maybe experienced it themselves when they were young, um, actually, I would say probably the most difficult part of the test is actually the itchiness for 15 minutes because right. you know, we really don't want patients to touch it um, because it leaves little droplets on the skin. So anyhow, mm -hmm. it's just a little bit uncomfortable because of the itchiness. Mm -hmm. But after 15 minutes, we clean it all off and, um, and all of that stuff resolves. So oh. it's really, really simple testing to get extremely valid results in a very short period of time. Okay. Yeah, that doesn't seem too bad. <laughs> no, which I'm so glad to hear because I saw on a reality show years and years back, this, uh, I think he was a teenager. He had a, a lot of different allergies and they were doing, um, I think you were saying the spot testing with different foods and he just seemed so uncomfortable. But uh, like you said, it could be the anxiety of being pregnant and also going through the process. And I mean, who wants to be itchy all the time? So 
glad to hear that it's not anything that's <laughs> too painful to go through. Yeah, it's it's not a big deal. Okay. It's just great with it. Yeah. So what are uh, some of the classic symptoms that a patient might have to make them think that they they may have food allergies and they need to schedule an appointment with you? That's such a good question because I think there's such an array of symptoms that people feel with foods. And so a lot of patients just inherently on their own, they just know that they don't feel good and they don't really know what it is. And so it's important to know that I think, you know, generally speaking, patients are really in tune with their bodies and how they feel. And so we do a lot of evaluation for all sorts of symptoms, not just those with food allergies. So I will say classic symptoms of immediate hypersensitivity, which is our IgE-mediated food allergy or antibody-mediated food allergy, these symptoms fall within the spectrum of what we see of anaphylaxis, which is a multiple body system, severe allergic reaction that happens by way of immediate hypersensitivity following an ingestion. So symptoms typically will fall within seconds to minutes to maybe an hour or two following an ingestion. And these symptoms really can come from multiple body systems, including the skin, the respiratory system, the gastrointestinal tract, or the cardiovascular system. So for example, we might see symptoms of hives, swelling, itching, or flushing of the skin. Respiratory symptoms could be something simple like repeated coughing. It could be chest tightness, labored breathing or shortness of breath, or even audible sounds of breathing like wheezing or strider. Gastrointestinal symptoms usually are swelling related. So that could be swelling in the mouth or throat, um, swelling in the gut leading to abdominal cramping, profound nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea. And the cardiovascular symptoms, which can be a little tricky to identify, um, these are usually related to a drop in blood pressure. So lightheadedness, Mm -hmm. dizziness, or loss of consciousness. So some really scary stuff. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this wide array of symptoms, you know, all of these things could possibly occur following an accidental ingestion of a food allergen. Okay. Okay. There's a lot. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I'm so glad you said that because, you know, I'm, as listeners know, I'm a dietitian. So I'll interview some patients and they'll mention either food allergy that's not common or they mention uh, reactions that I'm not used to mm-hmm. um, to certain foods to indicate that it's a food allergy. So then obviously I can't diagnose that, but sometimes I'm kind of questioning. I'm like, is that really a food allergy? Because that's not itching and swelling and mm. all the classic symptoms that I'm sure. And I'm used to, so I'm so, I'm so glad to know that there's a wide array of different symptoms that can happen. Absolutely. And I would even say, you know, that's kind of what we see in the in regards to primary food allergy. But in addition, you know, some people manifest their food allergy by way of their, um, their eczema being really difficult to control mm-hmm. or having flares of eczema. So we'll mm-hmm. see that. And there's a secondary form of food allergy that um, we commonly see here because of all of the um, just massive amount of tree pollen we have here in Northern Virginia. Um, But this is a problem that we refer to by the name of the pollen food allergy syndrome. And this is really fascinating. So the problem happens with ingestion of various fresh fruits and vegetables, nuts, seeds, and legumes. And these are foods that share analogous proteins 
with the allergenic proteins and pollen allergens. So we see this very commonly with tree pollen allergy and common symptoms may include um, itching, tingling, or mild swelling in the oral cavity for the most part, that's the majority. So lips, gums, tongue, roof of the mouth, or back of the throat. And while we can see more systemic symptoms with this pollen food allergy syndrome, over 90% of people mostly react to the food in the raw form, but they may tolerate it cooked. So it's very fascinating. And, you know, testing for some of these foods can be variable where we may see maybe positive or equivocal or even negative testing to these foods. But the commonality is that that correlating pollen allergy Mm -hmm. has significant sensitization. So it's really fascinating. And I mean, when you think about it, it all makes sense because all of this stuff comes from the earth. So, you know, whether it's pollen or whether it's food that we eat, um, you know, we can experience a lot of symptoms due to that, that cross-reactive relationship. So it's really fascinating stuff. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. I've never heard that before. So I guess like uh, a follow-up to that that I had um, when Delitra kind of mentioned, um, something that I hear a lot in my office is that um, I feel like brain fog is like, I don't know, like a new term that people throw around a lot. And they'll tell me that they feel a lot of brain fog when they eat gluten. Do you have any like experience? Is that like a common symptom with a gluten allergy? It's a good question. Um, I will say, I'll, I guess I'll comment about gluten first, and then I'll comment about brain fog. Okay. Um, <laughs> gluten, um, gluten is something that I think has become a focus probably in the last 10 years um, as people look to associate symptoms that they're experiencing with foods that they eat. And so um, there are some people that have an autoimmune disorder called celiac disease, which is a problem which starts with the ingestion of gluten, but it leads to the immune system making these antibodies that target part of the small intestine. And so we end up with symptoms that really start with kind of what we see with gastrointestinal malabsorption and increased GI transit. Mm. So that's a problem called celiac disease. And the way to treat that is with a strict gluten-free diet. Now, aside from celiac disease, many people have gluten intolerance. And I guess we can talk about food intolerance in just a bit, which I think is a giant category. Um, Mm. But, you know, when we talk about food intolerance, What that really means to me and how I explain this to patients is that food intolerance involves adverse symptoms that we feel in our body that are directly correlated to natural properties of the foods themselves that we're eating. And gluten is a major trigger for this. And so to differentiate this from food allergy, this just doesn't involve our immune system making antibodies to cause it. Mm. It's natural aspects of the foods themselves and their direct impact on the way our body functions. And that's really what we're talking about with food intolerance. So, you know, many years ago, the mantra of gluten was basically, you know, if you don't have celiac disease, then there's no reason you shouldn't eat gluten. And that's not essentially true because many people feel that intolerance to gluten because it makes them feel a certain way that they eat it that's unfavorable to them. And so for those folks, really the guidance is that they should avoid it if it's causing them to have symptoms. So brain fog is a problem that I feel like I hear more and more about in the last couple of years. And I don't feel like I find it as much with food intolerance, although I do to some degree. Um, But I find 
that brain fog is a concurrent symptom that I see with some other disorders related to kind of extensive mast cell degranulation and lots of immune mediator release. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of overlap there, but it's actually interesting. I think with the last iOS update, they came out with a little emoji of brain fog. I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's like these two cute little eyes and the rest of the little yellow circle face is like in this cute little cloud. So, I mean, I agree with you that it seems that brain fog is a more well-recognized term for kind of difficulty with concentration and focusing and, and, uh, and things like that. So, I mean, to me, that's kind of what my understanding of brain fog is, but again, you know, symptoms of all types can be associated with food intolerances. And I would say in addition, you know, sometimes it's migraine headache or sometimes it's flushing or skin itching or bloating Mm. or cramping or gas or loose stool or whatever. So, you know, there's a whole gamut of things that we see with food intolerance, um, that there's not a great diagnostic for it, aside from really just keeping a good food and symptom diary. So right. that's kind of where I, I kind of start with counseling my patients on food intolerance. Hmm. Yeah, all, all good stuff. I, um, so I guess I'm self-diagnosed in this, but I really, really believe it's true that I'm lactose intolerant. And I did get a blood test a couple of years ago um, and they told me basically it was negative and it you know, it didn't suggest that I had it, but every time I drink milk or ice cream or have a lot of cheese, I have the classic symptoms of uh, lactose intolerant, the cramps, diarrhea, discomfort. Um, And the nutrition recommendation for that is like choosing lactose-free products. You, You can have like a cup of milk, like small amounts and things like that. But I do notice with some people and even myself as well, even have small, having small amounts or having lactose-free milk for some reason, it still can bother me. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's just something that I try to avoid if if possible, not saying that I don't have my my ice cream every now and again, um, just because I love it. But um, that just reminded me when you were talking about the gluten uh, intolerance that people have, because there's a lot of controversy you know, in the dietetics field Mm -hmm. about uh, mostly because gluten uh, free products now are, it's more of a marketing type of thing and it doesn't apply to everyone, but certainly it does apply to uh, a certain population. And it's, it's, I think it's difficult to, or inappropriate to tell somebody, you know, that, that their gluten, um, symptoms that they have are not valid and that since they don't have celiac disease that they should just continue to to enjoy it in small amounts that was the connection i was making there (laughs) about that Um, well i think the point that you make is really good in that you know even with symptoms of lactose intolerance right you could still have a little ice cream once in a while right because you love it and so Mm -hmm. you know that's a very distinct difference with food allergy Right. So with food allergy, the only way to manage it is really with strict avoidance and then adequate education and emergency preparedness. So for those individuals, even a trace amount of protein can induce a systemic allergic reaction that Mm. can be life threatening. Mm. So, you know, it's really important to, you know, to understand that differentiation. So I love that you kind of pulled that in. Yeah. And I've I've heard from other people that even the smell of the allergen can cause symptoms. Is that? 
Yeah, it can. Absolutely. So sometimes it's, you know, even just something like profound nausea and, you know, almost repulsion because, you know, that individual's body is preparing them to avoid that food, you know? So while someone might say like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it's so sad that you can't eat whatever XYZ allergen, peanut butter, let's just say. Mm -hmm. Well, the person who might be peanut allergic would say, you know, there's not a chance that I would ever want to be near peanut butter. So no, thank you. And you can have it. Um, but, um, but yeah, in addition, I will say sometimes inhalation of some certain food allergens can induce symptoms. Like I saw a gentleman today who has fish allergy. And when he is in a restaurant where there's fish being cooked, for him, it starts to induce symptoms of asthma. Mm. So, wow. you know, we can see that very commonly, especially with fish and shellfish, that during cooking and preparation that those air, those proteins do aerosolize and can cause upper respiratory and lower respiratory symptoms as well. So that's definitely, um, that's true with some food allergens. Absolutely. Um, is it, is it possible for someone to outgrow an allergy? I've heard stories before where parents will say, well, my kid had a peanut allergy or whatever allergy, but now they don't. It seems like they've outgrown it. Is that possible? That is absolutely possible. And we see it more with certain foods compared to others. Um, But for example, like, you know, in childhood allergies to milk and wheat, for example, maybe close to 80% of those individuals may grow out of those allergens in childhood. Oh, wow. Something like egg, maybe two thirds. Um, and some of the other food allergens like peanut, tree nuts, fish and shellfish, um, those are much to a lesser degree, but some certainly do. So as we follow children with food allergy over time and as they grow, their best likelihood to grow out of food allergies is really just with time and avoidance. So, you know, and, and a little bit of luck on your side, maybe, I don't know. Um, but as we kind of reassess and we look for kind of downtrending of allergic sensitization, um, and we kind of move into the realm of thinking, okay, this child may have grown out of this food allergy. The way that we prove that is by doing a very monitored and regimented food challenge here in our office. So we do it in a monitored setting where children will increase or they'll they'll ingest increasing amounts of whatever that culprit food is um, up to the total cumulative dose, which is like usually a unit serving um, for that that child. And then, you know, we do that incrementally with vital signs taken in between and clinical evaluations. And then there's an observation period at the end. And so once we can, you know, prove that a child is able to ingest a full serving um, without any clinical symptoms, then we um, view that as the child growing out of that food allergen. And then we give the parents instructions of how to continue with introduction at home, continued introduction. So it's very cool. Yeah, that sounds It's a great day for those families. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's lucky for those people who can outgrow that stuff. Yeah. Right. So my question, (laughs) I'll give you backstory on my question. I watched a documentary on Netflix and I believe it was called Rotten, but one of the episodes um, was about peanuts and how like peanut farmers are kind of struggling because like this 
the peanut allergy has just really like significantly increased these past couple of years. And so my question to you, I'm wondering if you have thoughts on like, what, what do you think has really contributed to, well, first, are they right? Has the peanut allergy like really increased over the years? And two, if it has, like, what do you think has really like contributed to such an increase? It's a really good question. Um, the answer to that is is definitely yes. And I would say, you know, probably between, you know, the late 90s and the late 2000s, um, the incidence of food allergy in general went up substantially, probably close to 20 percent oh, wow. um, in the United States. So a substantial increase. And it's not so straightforward as to why that's happened, but there's a lot of theories. And to some degree, it has to do with um, introduction and timing of introduction of highly allergenic foods. And in this regard, the pendulum has definitely swung both ways in that, you know, when I was a child, I think around that time, the guidance that was given by pediatricians was, you know, to delay introduction of the more highly allergenic foods. And in doing so, it allows the immune system to first encounter those food allergens in other ways rather than through the gut. And the gut is the best place for our immune system to um, develop immune tolerance. Mm. And so sometimes we're talking about maybe even like transdermal contact in inflamed skin in a child with eczema, you know, and then that's the first immune recognition of food allergens through, you know, oils or, or residues that are on an adult's hands or whatever, something like that. And then, you know, then when that child will later have that first introduction of that food through the gut, then the body becomes reactive. So that's one theory, you know, relating to that delayed introduction. And so um, now the pendulum has swung back in the other direction. Um, a few years ago, several years ago, the LEAP study came out, which really proved uh, a lot of data um, that early introduction of the more highly allergenic foods tends to be substantially better to for the early development of tolerance um, to these foods. So um, we have a lot of kind of information as to different things that could contribute to it, but there's not one great straightforward reason why, mm -hmm. you know, we don't really truly know for sure. Yeah. Is it, is it important for like mothers to eat that stuff while they're pregnant? And does that like help at all? Or cause I, my mom, I mean, you know, my, I, I feel like my sister ate peanut butter, you know, when she was pregnant and, but my nephew has such an intense like peanut allergy. So, but I hear that a lot. Some people are like, Oh, it's cause you didn't eat peanuts or you didn't eat fish when you were pregnant or something like that. Is it, does that matter? Believe it or not, it really doesn't play a major role. And it's interesting because I think, you know, parents put a lot of unnecessary stress and blame um, on, you know, all these different things as to what contributed to um, their child's food allergy. But it really is a blameless problem that, you know, is just like I said, there's just so many factors plus a little bit of bad luck. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then, you know, it's something that we just need to kind of address and move on and deal with it. But, right. you know, I think, I think parents can really put a lot of guilt on themselves about things that really are beyond their control. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I, I saw that a lot working with, uh, prenatal clients, like, you know, all the list of things, that they hear to avoid to eat, you know, due to food safety and stuff like that. But there's also some cultural and I don't know if they're getting it from the media, other stuff <laughs> that they should avoid 
um, have eating at that time. And then if they didn't do it, then that's the reason why the child is overweight or the reason why the child has allergies or something like that. So I agree that's unnecessary stress that um, society or self-induced that uh, parents can put on themselves in regards to food and things like that. Right. Um, I have an, another question, kind of going to another uh, category, just talking more about yourself. Do you enjoy your your field of work? Uh, and what's the process for becoming um, an immunologist? Well, that's such a good question. Um, I truly love what I do so much in that I find that I can really help people to live better and to feel better, learning more about things that cause symptoms they experience and helping people to live better with fewer medications and to really change the trajectory of the way that people live. And so that's so rewarding to me. I truly love it. Um, You know, I got into this field um, starting with a residency in internal medicine, which is um, medical care for adults. Mm. And, um, you know, and you can also get into allergy immunology from a pediatrics background as well, because it is an adult and pediatric subspecialty. So after I finished my residency and decided that that was the direction that I was most interested to pursue, I actually practiced internal medicine for a couple of years and I taught in a family medicine residency program. And I really honed my craft of being a great clinician um, before I went back and did my subspecialty training. So I think when I went back to do fellowship, I had just this really broad outlook as an open-minded learner. And I think that was just so awesome and so important. Um, I chose to do my fellowship or my subspecialty training in a program that primarily was a pediatric program because I was already a practicing internist and I felt very comfortable with managing medical problems in adults, but I really didn't have any skill or knowledge base really in some of the diseases specific to pediatrics. And so I felt that in order to challenge myself and to help myself become a much more well-rounded clinician, that putting myself in a situation where I really needed to push myself outside of my comfort zone to learn new things and different disease processes that I wasn't as familiar with um, was a really good setup um, for an amazing clinical practice where here in, you know, in my practice, we see um, children all the way from infancy, all the way up through their teenage years. And we see young adults all the way into their, their elderly years. So it's really such a broad array. And to me, it's so fascinating because some of the problems we see in early childhood or even middle or later childhood, they differ significantly from other problems that we see in adulthood and even, you know, in the, in the older years and things like that. So, you know, some things we see pretty similarly throughout, but there's a lot of nuances that are different. So, you know, every day is a new experience to, to serve people in my community. Um, like just today, for example, Um, You know, today's Friday and on Fridays, we only we work a shorter day. And, you know, just this morning before lunchtime, we were able to serve four new patients and nine follow up patients and about 45 patients for allergen immunotherapy. Um, So it was just a wonderful day to be able to, you know, really make a difference in these people's lives. So that way they can go on through their lives, you know, feeling well, being safe 
um, and really trying to, you know, thrive in their, in their environment. So um, it's just extremely rewarding. Yeah, sounds like it. And you had a really good background too. <laughs> you, went, you did a lot of work to get there. So congratulations on that. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It's a long haul for sure. I mean, just, you know, between, you know, undergraduate and medical school and then, you know, after finishing medical school um, to become an allergist immunologist, um, usually it's five to six postgraduate years of training, um, depending on if you do an extra year, that sixth year would is usually a research year if, for those who choose to do it. Right. Um, and, um, and then lots of extra years of, you know, learning on the job because, day one when you finish residency and you first like, you know, put on your, your white jacket as an attending for the first time and you show up at work and it's like, you're just at like day one. So there's so much (laughs) knowledge, there's so much knowledge to gain from, from clinical experience and continued, you know, lifelong learning, continuing education and camaraderie in our field with other clinicians. So it's pretty awesome. I have to say I have a good job. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, you would definitely have to love what you do. That's a long time to be in school and stuff. So sure. Do you have, so are there the people that work with you or for you, I guess, do, are they nurses or are they like certified or like what? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a good question. So, so this is, this is small business over here. I say that all the time. So we are a very small practice. Um, I am a solo clinician, so I'm the only physician in our group. And we have five nurses on staff with us, um, three registered nurses, one licensed practical nurse and a medical assistant as well. And um, we have three nurses who are with me here in the office every day. And we have two virtual nurses who actually, believe it or not, live in the Philippines and they work with us every day. So they, one of them um, does scribing for me. So she and I do all of our visits together, um, where she's on audio with me and I introduce her as part of the visit and she helps me with charting and writing orders and putting together a really amazing summary of the visit. So the patients can have that following the visit and they don't, you know, that way I don't have to sit there with my face in a computer and they don't need to sit there with a pen scribbling notes Mm. and we can just sit there face to face and have a conversation about really, you know, what the plan of care is going to be. And so she helps me with um, a lot of that clinical documentation, um, which is just a tremendous asset. And our other virtual registered nurse, um, she runs our front office. So she registers and schedules patients and Mm -hmm. she sets up appointments and she answers clinical questions and helps people who are calling in by phone. Um, So, you know, it's such a great team. And for those who are here in the office, plus our virtual nurses, we all work together really strongly And there's just a lot of um, great camaraderie and a lot of unified care for doing, you know, the very best that we can for our patients at all times. So it's really terrific. I'm lucky. Yeah, yeah. That sounds awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, I had a question, well, really going back to the conversation we had uh, about the patient that you had with... um, the the symptoms that can arise from smelling um, mm-hmm. the, those allergens. Do you have any recommendations for patients who uh, want to engage in social gatherings or go out to eat where they may encounter their allergen? 
It's a good question. This actually just came up maybe a week or two ago with another um, young adult patient who came to see me with his mom. And, you know, I think for so many people, food allergy is such a driver of stress and anxiety. And, um, and it's really hard because people do find that, you know, having a food allergy is not an outward sign that we have on ourselves saying, I have this problem. And so many people wouldn't know it if you didn't explain it to them. So sometimes there are some, you know, social um, stressors in that, you know, especially with young adults, I see this a lot, where they don't have that confidence to necessarily, you know, speak up for themselves and be their own advocate. But that's really what we teach them to do because we just need to share with them, you know, there may be times that, you know, you may need to guide your friends to say, look, that restaurant's not going to be a good choice for me. Or, you know, this may put me in a situation that that I'm not going to be able to really be there. And so, you know, let's work together and pick something different. And so, you know, we try to make sure that they can advocate for themselves. And as new young adults, I think that that's a, you know, that's a new skill to learn. Yeah. But it's important. And so one way that I try to circumvent that kind of thing in advance as much as I can is with all of my pediatric patients, I really like to sit down and talk with them during the visit. Like I like them to be the focus of everything in the visit. And a lot of people, when they go to see, you know, a a doctor with their child, the doctor's talking to the parent. You know, and there is a role for that, but really the conversation needs to happen with the child. And I think children need to be empowered to learn those things about themselves. Mm -hmm. So that way, by the time they become young adults, they feel much more powerful in their message and they can, you know, really advocate for themselves. Right. So we try it. I mean, yeah, your, your parents aren't going to be there forever to, <laughs> to help you, yeah. you know, so. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah I, I love that, that recommendation to be an advocate. Because I really feel like people uh, in general are just bliss, blissfully like unaware of food allergies and contents. I'm aware of that, of course, because I'm a dietitian. So if I have a friend that's like a vegan or has a food allergy or something like that, and they're coming to my house or we're going to a friend's uh, home or something, I'll say, well, you know, they have such and such allergies, so they can't have that. Right. Make sure you have these options for them there. Um, and I don't think that's something that really goes through the mind of a lot of people. So I love uh, your recommendation for them to really be an advocate for themselves, just to educate those around them and making sure that they're safe in their environments. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I feel like it's important, like people who don't have allergies, we need to take it, you know, very seriously. I, I saw, yeah. I think somebody in England had actually passed away because I, I think he, I think he had gone to an Indian restaurant and he had told them I have a peanut allergy, but I guess they made a dish with peanuts and they hadn't, you know, told him, they gave it to him, he yeah. ate it. And then he had a severe, you know, reaction. Then I think he passed away. So I feel like wow. you, for people who don't have allergies, like we do need to start really like taking that stuff seriously and like if someone says they have a peanut allergy, like to be respectful and, and, you know, make those accommodations because it's, it could kill someone. (laughs) What's so hard about restaurants, especially is um, the possibility of what we call cross contact. So cross contact isn't anything that's intentional, but it can very easily happen by accident and that it might just be the tiniest bit of protein that gets transferred. Like for example, like in, 
you know, maybe the food that would be a safe food is cooked on the grill surface where a not safe food had been cooked, Mm. or maybe the same turner was used, you know, to flip that food over or whatever. So, you know, there's so many very simple ways that cross contact can happen. And that's essential that those who experience and suffer from food allergies really need to be aware of and to do, you know, everything we can to avoid. Right. Yeah. That's such a great point because I noticed, again, with the gluten-free products being very popular, like pizza restaurants and things like that. People are like, gluten-free, gluten-free pizza here, gluten-free product here. But there's a small writing that says, like, that they cannot guarantee that it didn't come in contact with other um, items that may contain that that allergen. So if you truly have celiac disease, it's usually not a great idea to, um, like a lot of these products are not a great idea for people who have allergens because of the unintentional cross contact, the training of the workers to even know what to do um, for someone with allergies. So it's something that's that's really serious. Absolutely, mm-hmm. good point. Do you uh, is, is there anything else that you like that you would like to share with our audience? Do you um, have any tips or ways that our audience members can connect with you? Yeah. So um, as I had mentioned, my private practice is here in Northern Virginia in the Vienna Tyson's area, which is a suburb of Washington D.C. And I really see patients from a fairly wide radius around here just because, you know, people want to see an expert in certain problems and and they may find me that way. So anyhow, um, I would love to be able to connect with your audience for those who really um, need help sorting out their food-related problems. So again, you know, it's not always food allergy or an immunologic food problem, and it could be food intolerance, but but we help patients manage all of that stuff. So, um, you know, we're certainly happy to help help, um, you know, here in, in our local office in Northern Virginia. Um, patients can find me or your audience can find me on my practice website, which is kaufmanallergy.com. And I'm also on social media on Facebook at Kaufman Allergy and on Instagram at Allergy. So those are a couple of places that you can find me, um, but I'm, I'm happy to help. Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah, we'll definitely have to follow you as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> well, tonight has been extremely formative and it's honestly for me, it's been a great experience. So thank you so much for allowing us to interview you tonight. Um, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to have this conversation with you guys. Such an important topic and it's just great to be able to put that together. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely, you know, we don't get to chat with people from such an extensive field. So we we hope our listeners learned a thing or two tonight as well. Um, As we bid farewell to Dr. Kaufman, we want to remind you all to keep sending us suggestions for our upcoming episodes. We love hearing from you all. And I mean, essentially, we're here to serve you. So (laughs) um, if there's anything you want to learn about, please let us know. Be sure to hit that follow and subscribe on our YouTube channel and our social media accounts along with Dr. Kaufman's um, so that you can also be in the know for when new episodes drop. So until next time, we hope you have a good day. Bye.